Isaiah chapter 9, um, uh, verses 1 to 7. So we've got a couple of uh, candles here to remind us of the season that we're in. And I mentioned last week, as uh, we were looking at just rounding out our series, looking at these different tensions, uh, how in the Forsyth family we've put our Christmas lights up early. Uh, but I'm pleased to, to say that, that it looks like the rest of the world is caught up with where they should have been. And other lights seem to be going on. Most of us, anyone knock up their Christmas lights up yet? Guys, what is going on? Come on, I expected the Masons to have theirs up. Like, oh, there you go. All the excuses come out now. But they are, they are coming. The Christmas lights are coming. And there's a bit of a, a build-up. There was a funny um, uh, video on the news this week of, I don't know where it was, but somewhere having a big... Christmas switch on, you know, where usually it'd be a big fanfare, everyone would come to the town centre and they get some C-list celebrity to put the hand on, on the button and the lights come on at the same time and there was this, um, they did it virtually this week and the button was in front of them but the timings were all over the place and they hit the button about three seconds after the lights came on behind and it was quite funny to watch but um, these lights are, are kind of coming out more and more at this time of the season and, and light Light in general does something for us. It does something to us. It points us to something. It, it, it conjures up all sorts of different emotions and feelings and reminds us of lots of different things. A number of years ago, I'm trying to figure out how many years it is, but I'll get it wrong. But, but a while ago, the Second World War, 1939, September the 1st, uh, on that night, the whole of England went into darkness. It was the start of, of a blackout and it carried on for a series of years. And in the run-up to the start of the Second World War, the RAF had, had flown some reconnaissance missions across the big cities, across uh, the country to see where the bright lights might be. And they pointed out uh, clock towers and, and churches and different buildings. And they reported back and told these places that they need to, to turn their lights off. There was a national effort of women uh, making curtains, blackout curtains, so that we, we could all cover up our homes. A great effort to make candles. Like lights were going out at night time and we could just have candles as we walked around the streets. There's some funny stories of, of the lights going off outside and people, people setting off from, ho- uh, from work at the end of the day and ended up in a different village altogether. It was that dark. And I think some of us got a sense of that during lockdown, like how dark it can be when some of the lights are turned off. But back then, all of the lights outside were off and people were getting lost on their way home. There was a, a, a massive jump in deaths, road traffic accidents of cars, mountain pavements and knocking people over because they couldn't see. Headlights had to be adjusted and the council would go around and paint white lines along the pavement so you could see where you were going. And people were told to, to um, uh, tie handkerchiefs to the, the side of their, their coat so cars would see where they were coming. There was something that came around called blackout anemia, an actual condition that the government um, um, publicised where people were struggling so much with the darkness and not having light during the evening that they had to put a name on it and GPs were given special instructions on how to care for people who were struggling with blackout anemia. Six years later on, after 1939, on the 23rd of April, 1945, it was 10 days after the liberation of, um, hey guys, you okay? Ten days after the liberation of Belsom, one of the concentration camps, when it was clear that the Allies had won the war, six years after the blackout had started, the lights came back on. Right across England, the lights were switched 
back on. And it was, it was a necessity. We needed lights back on and people have been waiting for years for these lights to come back on. But it was also deeply symbolic of, of the defeat of the enemies of our country. The, the Allies had won the war. Nazi Germany had been defeated. And, and a, as, a, as a symbolic act, but also as a necessity, the lights were switched on. The darkness was pushed back. Their story, none of us lived through that story. Maybe some of our parents or grandparents did. But their story, the story of six years of darkness, and then the lights coming on when the enemies were defeated, their story reflects deeply the story. The greatest story, the story that all of us are wrapped into, the great story of God bringing his son into the darkness to push back darkness. The great story of, of us walking in darkness because of our sin, because of the sin that we've inherited from our father, Adam. The great story of Jesus coming in and defeating our enemies. And as a symbolic act, but also as a necessity, the lights came back on. As Jesus defeated Satan, sin and death, darkness was pushed back. Our enemies were defeated. Light came into the darkness, and as light came into the darkness, our response as humanity, if we are part of that part of the story, if we are God's people, our response to the light coming into the darkness is and should be joy. That should be our response. Like you think of England, six years in darkness, night after night after night, and then, and then the blackout curtains are gone, the lights go on outside, the response of the nation is great joy. Because their enemies have been defeated and light is back. And folks, I want to encourage us this morning and this season as we think about Advent to respond rightly. And our right response to the finished work of the cross, our right response to God defeating our enemies, Satan, sin and death, should be joy. It should be. We're going to see that as we walk through this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. And this is a wonderful passage. And if you're there and you've had a little glance through, some of it will be familiar. You'll recognize some of the word, and especially at this time of the year. But we will miss the true wonder of what is going on if we just kind of home in on that middle, middle part of the passage and neglect the context. Let me just kind of bring us up to speed of where we are in this book of Isaiah. If you kind of look back over the page, Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 8 is a dark chapter. You see this message of judgment from God towards Israel. God is judging his people. And this is following a kind of buildup of judgment all the way from chapter 1 through to chapter 8. God is kind of pushing his judgment towards his people. And, and it is a right judgment. God is judging them righteously. If you flick over the page to chapter 5, you'll see that the, the heart of his people, it is evil. He says, he says his people are guilty for choosing evil over good. They, they're literally calling what is good evil and what is evil good. They're getting it all mixed up. They, they're calling what is dark light and what is light darkness. They are guilty for their sin. They are guilty for their rebellion against God. They are guilty for choosing evil over God. And as a result, God righteously brings judgment to them. He brings judgment to those who are walking in their darkness, who are walking in their sin, who are walking in their evil. 
And that is the picture we have of, of Israel as we get to chapter 9. But folks, that is also a picture of us. Without God, that is us. Without God, we run towards sin. Without God, we live in darkness. Without God, we will choose evil over good. We will call evil what is good and good what is evil. Without God, we will walk in the darkness and live in the darkness. And the right response from God towards us for that is judgment. Yes, Elia, it's judgment. And the result of the judgment from God because of our evil is hopelessness. And despair. Folks, nothing thrives in the darkness. Except, Mark will tell us, mold. And disgusting looking fish at the bottom of the ocean. Nothing beautiful thrives in the darkness. Humanity cannot and humanity will not walk in the fullness of life that God has created for us while we remain in the darkness. Humanity needs life. We need a light. Humanity needs light to have life. We need light to flourish. Towards the end of chapter 8, Israel starts to understand the despair of the darkness that they are walking in. In the last few verses of chapter 8, you see they start consulting mediums. So looking to the future, trying to look to the future to find a better hope there. And they, they engage with necromancers, trying to raise the dead, trying to find a hope in things that have already gone. They look into the future, they look into the past to try and find a hope in the darkness, and they can't get out. The last verse in chapter 8, in verse 22, they look to the future, they look to the past, and now they look to creation. They look to the earth to try and fix their problem of darkness, and, and it doesn't work. In fact, what they find is this, that, that they are in a place of distress and darkness and a gloom of anguish. And actually, as they try and find the light in the future, in the past, and even in the present within creation, what they find in verse 22 is actually they just just plunge themselves into deeper and deeper darkness. That is what happens, folks. If we try and find light and life outside of God, all we do is just walk further and further into darkness. But if you look down at our passage this morning, that is the first word of chapter 9. But wherever we read that verse in the Bible, it signifies a change. Something is about to shift. Something is about to change. And Isaiah says in verse one, but, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramp, tramping warrior in battle tumult, every, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government 
and of peace there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These verses were written about 700 years before Jesus' birth, but they are undoubtedly about him. It is clear that Isaiah is looking forward to, to the coming of Jesus. And, and in Luke chapter 2, you actually see the, uh, the angels echo these same uh, words of declaration about Jesus at his birth. The darkness is real for Israel. But Isaiah is saying light is coming. Light is coming, brothers and sisters. And the response when light is coming will be joy. Verse 1, he's saying, those who are walking in darkness, those who are in anguish, the gloom that you are in will be lifted. There is a time coming. Hope in that time, Israel. There is a time coming where the darkness will be pushed back, where God will enter in. And darkness will run away. But you see, that promise is not just for Israel. See in verse uh, 1 of chapter 9 there, he talks about Zebulun and Naphtali. These were two tribes of Jacob. And they were given land in, as they kind of were brought out of the Exodus and they come into the promised land, they were given uh, land. And this land edged onto the Sea of Galilee. Isaiah is reminding God's people that judgment is coming. But in verse 1, look at the tenses that he, he talks about the judgment. He talks about the former times. He talks about the, the contempt, literally the curse of God being, being something that is of the past for God's people. In the former times that happened, but, but look what is coming. In the latter times, look ahead, God's people. And what does he say is coming in verse 1? Glory. Glory is coming. As God comes, as light comes, all of our struggle against God, all of the darkness that we contend with, that will be a thing of the past because glory is coming. The literal translation of glorious there in verse 1 is this, the rich presence of God. That's what he's encouraging God's people towards. Brothers and sisters, the rich presence of God is coming. A time is coming where the rich presence of God is going to be amongst us. And where does Isaiah say the glory is going to go? Not just to Zebulun, not just to Naphtali, not just to ethnic Israel. He says it's going to go beyond Jordan. I love this phrase, Galilee the nations the glory of god will go to the nations isaiah is undoubtedly looking forward to the coming of jesus when he will lift the darkness and the glory of god will shine not just on 12 tribes not just on one nation but across the earth how will that happen we'll look down again at verse 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Now, now, there is hope in that passage, but don't miss what Isaiah says. The darkness is deep. The darkness is deep. Don't just kind of read darkness there and think, oh, it's a, a nice illustration, a bit of a, just a, a nice pictorial thing. No, it is, a, it is a truth about the condition of the human heart, that the darkness that all of us walk in is deep. Yeah, haven't we seen that over this past year? The corruption, not just of our hearts, but even, even creation breaking. And folks, there, there is a vaccine coming. And that is good news. And that will help us as humanity. 
but it will not touch the darkness that humanity lives under because of our rebellion against God. It will not cure the darkness that we walk in. The darkness is a result of our sin and vaccines do not get rid of our sin. The darkness that we walk in has us standing against God as enemies, opposed to God. And a vaccine will not prevent that. It will not shift our position. The darkness is deep and it leads us to death. But there is hope, Isaiah says. The light has come. And the way that Isaiah is talking about the light here in verse 2, it's not like a gentle sunrise. Like, have you ever done that, kind of watching the sunrise or the sunset, and it's like a gradual thing that just comes up and you get used to it? No, Isaiah is talking about a great flash of light. Like, this is like, like some of us young men, um, young men, I am a young man. Some of us young men will remember this from our student days. Some of us might still be living this now, but those days where, where you're lying in bed and it's still like the, probably halfway through the morning and your mum comes in and pulls the curtains open and the light just shines through the window. You know what I'm talking about? Ryan's looking at Georgina. Maybe some of us husbands are used to this as well. But the, the curtains fly open and the, the sun's kind of blinding us in our face. That's the kind of light that he's talking about. Isaiah is saying there is coming a day, Israel, when it won't be like a gentle sunset when the glory comes. No, God is going to come like a great flash. Light is going to enter into the darkness. And you will see the glory of God. And can I say for some of us this morning, we need that wake up. Like our mothers opening up the curtains, we need that wake up and to see the glory of God again. Because we've got used to walking in the darkness again. We've got used to walking back to the darkness and living in the darkness. And that is not where we belong. How do we finish off chapter 2 last week? We are called to walk in the light of the Lord. And maybe I could do this this morning for us. Pull back those curtains. And as we walk through and see the beauty of the gospel, remind you, the marvellous light of Jesus stepping into our darkness. A light has come in Isaiah 6. And note in verse 2, this isn't a light that we turn on. It's not like we walk in the darkness or Israel are walking in the darkness and they realise their need for the light and they wander over to the to this spiritual light switch and they switch it on. It isn't like they cause the light to come. God brings the light. God brings the light for Israel and they find themselves in it. I love how he, how he ends this, this portion in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not you, Israel. Not you, Naphtali. Not you, Zebulun. Not you, Christians of Liberty Church. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring his light. He does this work. He brings his glory. Not us. The light is coming for Israel. And it has come for us. And the light that has come... That light is Jesus. How do we know it's Jesus? Isaiah doesn't mention Jesus by name in the passage. I'll put a finger in Isaiah 9 and just flick forward to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that this passage is undoubtedly about Jesus. Jesus has just been in the wilderness and and the devil has been trying to tempt him and lure him away from God and Jesus isn't having any of it. And he quotes this very passage about himself he says it word for word verse 15 the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali the way of the sea beyond the jordan galilee of the gentiles the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned 
And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus claims those verses, claims Isaiah 9 as his own. And he says, it's me. I have come. I am the light that has come. What does he call himself elsewhere in John's gospel? I am the light of the world. Jesus coming as him, bringing the light of God into the darkness. He fulfills the prophecy that we read here in Isaiah chapter 9. And in Matthew, Jesus shows us how we receive the light. If you want to come out of darkness, if you want to come out of gloom, if you want to come out of this anguish that Isaiah is talking about, we have to come to Jesus. We have to come to Jesus who is the light. And here's the thing that happens when we do that. When we come to Jesus, who is the light, it shows up our flaws. This might be, maybe me, and I might show myself to be a bit of a, a messy, uh, uncouth person when I say this, but I'm hopefully finding some other people who, who um, relate to this. But this time of year, when you get up in the morning and it's dark outside, and, and maybe the other people in the house are still asleep, you don't want to put the lights on, so you get chains into whatever you're wearing, and, and maybe you go out if you're going to work or school or whatever it is, And have you ever done this where you get changed in the darkness and you go to work or school and you find that there's a dirty stain or something on your top that you didn't see because you couldn't see it when you were getting changed? Anyone? No, just me. Oh, I need to wash my clothes a bit more. But you know what I mean, right? Like when we get changed and we don't see something and it's not until we find ourselves in the light that all these different flaws are shown up. That is what happens when we come to Christ, guys. We think we're all fixed up. We think we're all great. We think we're righteous still until we stand before Jesus. And as we come to Jesus, the first thing that he does is to show us our sin, to show us our rebellion, to show us our unrighteousness, to show us how glorious he is and how inferior we are in contrast. He shows us the reality of our sin. And what did he say in Matthew 4? We need to repent. We need to see Jesus for who he is and repent. That means to turn away from our sin and to turn towards him. When we see our sin, when we see ourselves for who we are and see Jesus for who he is, the right response is to repent. And folks, we will want to do that. We will want to walk away from that life. We will want to walk away from that sin and that darkness when we remember And when we realise what he has done for us. Turn back to chapter 9 of Isaiah. Verse 4. Isaiah says this. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor you have broken. As on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. When we realise what Jesus has done in the gospel, we will want to walk away from sin and walk towards him who is light. What Isaiah is talking about here, this day of Midian, it's a, it's a great battle. You can read about it in Judges chapter 7. And, and oftentimes we look at the hero of this battle being Gideon. This is where Gideon gets his name from there. But Gideon isn't the hero at all. In this great battle of Midian, what, what you have in the story, if you follow it through, is, is God's enemies are standing against Israel. And Gideon, who's the leader of God's army, starts with an army of 32,000 men ready to go out in battle, ready to finish the Midianites, Midianites off. And God says, no, no, it's too many. 
I want to show you that I'm, I'm going to win this battle. Whittle it down a bit. And so Gideon ends up with 10,000 men in the army. And God says again, no, no it's too many. Take it down to 300. And Gideon gathers this army of 300 men against tens of thousands of Midianites. And they go out and they win the war. These 300 men win the war. And at the end of this battle, you read in in, uh, chapter 7 of Judges, verse 2. It says this, every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. These 300 men standing against tens of thousands of men won this battle. The war is over. They were freed from their enemies. And God did that to show them, it's me. I am winning this for you. It's not you. You're you're not strong. 300 men can't win a war. I have won the battle for you. I have freed you from your enemies. It is my power. It is my glory. It is my strength that has done it. And as Isaiah quotes here, he talks about a a yoke. He talks about a staff. He talks about a rod. These are implements of oppression. A yoke was, was something that a slave would wear over their shoulders. It was a sign of oppression. A staff was, was a, a stick that the slave master would hold over their, over their slave. And the rods, this was a stick of punishment. Isaiah is saying, remember, you were slaves. Remember, you were in slavery. Remember what happened in Judges? Remember Gideon? God released them from their enemies. God freed them from their enemies. God liberated his people. And in Isaiah chapter 9 here, he is reminding us that a day is coming where God is going to do that. Not just for ethnic Israel, but on a cosmic scale. Light is coming. And on that day, God will free people. He will liberate people from their darkness. From their slavery to sin, Satan and death. See, folks, the coming of Jesus is the start of liberation for humanity from our great enemies. And it is a liberation that culminates on the cross and at Jesus' resurrection. Because at the cross, Jesus breaks the yoke of sin and Satan that is holding over us. He removes the burden of guilt and corruption that is hanging over us. He frees us from the rod of our oppressors. And through his resurrection, God's people now live in true liberty as children of God. That is what happens, folks. If, you, if we are Christians this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been brought into freedom. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians 5.1? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that is the impossible work of God. And in verse 5, as a, as a symbolic act of their victory... Isaiah says, all of the implements that your enemies have been used to to wage war against you, God is going to gather them all in and burn them all up. But he uses them as fuel for a fire. It's not like God just shifts them out of the way and says, okay, just forget about all that's happened, all the evil that's been stacked against you. No, God uses the things that were used for evil against them for his purposes. He uses them as a fire to warm his people. And I wanted to remind us this morning The darkness we once walked in, the sin that we once walked in. This is the glory of God, folks. God will even use those things for his glory. He will even use those things for for our good. He doesn't just wipe away and dismiss about it and, and forget it. He will use even the things that we have engaged in against him for his glorious purposes. 
In verse 6, Isaiah reaches the pinnacle of his prophecy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The four that he starts, verse 6 with, Isaiah is saying all that has just been said, all that has just been described, that is coming about because of what I'm about to say. It has all come about. The freedom from your slavery has come about because of Jesus. Because a child will be born. Because a child has been born. And this child will be called Mighty God. He will rule as a prince over his kingdom. And in verse 7, this kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And it will be a place of increasing peace, of perfect justice, of righteousness. That's who's coming. And specifically, the one who's coming is coming as mighty God. But specifically, he is coming as a child. Jesus comes as God and he comes as a child. And that is the hinge that holds all of this passage together. Jesus coming to us as light, as God and as a child is the hinge of this passage. And it's the hinge of all history. God coming as as man and as God is what theologians call the hypostatic union. God putting on human flesh. And the hypostatic union, that might sound like a fancy word. But that is necessary, absolutely necessary, if we are going to find ourselves out of the slavery that we are in. Unless God comes as man, we will still be enslaved to our sin. Jesus had to put on human flesh. And isn't that Jesus just begins at his birth? Note in verse 6, Isaiah says, a son is given. Jesus has existed eternally. He is eternally the son of God. 2,000 years ago was the starting point of his humanity. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came in the flesh. He was born in the flesh 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, the eternal son of God added humanity to his divinity. That means he is fully God and he is fully human. It doesn't mean he's half human and half God. Jesus has two complete inseparable natures which are perfectly united in his one person. And those two natures are necessary to free us from death and to save us from our sin. And we might be thinking, well, why couldn't Jesus just come as a man? Why, just as a grown man like Adam? Why didn't he just appear in his 30s and, and just start from there? Or why couldn't he just send a legion of angels to sort out our problem? Or why didn't he just step in as God, just in his divinity? Why did he have to come as a baby? Well, think of what a baby is, helpless, weak, dependent. Jesus had to come as a baby because if he didn't, he wouldn't be able to sympathize with us. He grew knowing what it is to live in the midst of darkness, yet without sin. He grew knowing what it is to be tempted towards sin, yet without sin. And he grew into the human that all of us need to be, but could never be because of our sin. Jesus was perfectly and is perfectly human. And that is why in verse 6, see those descriptions? That is why Isaiah is able to call Jesus a wonderful counselor. 
Like, I don't know if anyone's ever received counselling before, but one of the common objections that people have when they're receiving some sort of counselling is, is this, person, this person doesn't know how to relate to me. They haven't experienced what I've experienced, so how can they relate to me? Folks, Jesus has. Jesus has experienced all of the pain, all of the betrayal, all of the suffering, all of the loss that you will ever experience, yet without sin. And so Isaiah says, you can call him Wonderful Counselor. Because he is able to sympathise. He is able to relate. And because he knows us. He is one of us. And because he is one of us, he is able to represent us before God, human for human. God alone cannot do that. It has got to be man standing before God. And that is what Jesus comes and does. It has to be a human who mediates for a human. It has to be a human who stands in the place of a human. And that is what Jesus Christ does on the cross. Jesus the man takes our judgment and dies for us. Jesus the man experiences our darkness and he takes our sin. And he rises again in victory. And as a result, the yoke, the staff, the rod of our slavery has been broken and the war is over. The war has been won. And Isaiah says that that means Jesus becomes like a father to us. Not that he becomes God the father, but he becomes like a father, everlasting father, welcoming his creation into the eternal family of God. Caring for his creation like a father would. Protecting his creation like a father would. Everlasting father, wonderful counsellor. And folks, all of this that Jesus does, all of this that God does, get this, it is for us. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Listen, Jesus coming into the world, the light coming into the darkness. He did that for you. He did that for me. He experienced the darkness of what it is to be a human for you and for I. Yes, for the glory of the Father, but for you and for I. If you are in any doubt this morning that God loves you, read this passage again. To you a child was born. To you a son was given. Jesus left the throne room of heaven and experienced the pain of being a man and suffered and died for your sin and for my sin. Because he loves you. Hypostatic union, fancy big word, but it is permanent proof that Jesus, in perfect harmony with his Father, is unstoppably for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. How should we respond to that? How should Israel respond to this coming light in the darkness? With joy. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. That word glad there is, is just another word for joy. Four times Israel says the right response is God coming and bringing light into the darkness. The right response for, for this son coming and, and taking our sin and defeating our enemies. The right response, Israel, is joy. Four times joy. The right response for us this morning as believers this side of the cross is joy. We have been brought into a kingdom of light. We have been filled with joy. And like a farmer who reaches the end of the harvest, we should be satisfied. We have received the light of Christ. We should be happy in God, folks. 
And let me just clarify this as we wrap this up. The joy that we're talking about here isn't, isn't like Christmas cheer. It isn't something that we just experience on Christmas Day and then once all the, the, the presents are opened and once our bellies are full, we kind of just slip back into, into normal service. And the joy that Christians have is an abiding joy. It is happiness. It is an emotional response to God, but it is not something that is contingent on a present that that we enjoy one day and is gone the next. It is contingent on the gospel, which is a finished work. It is contingent on, on God defeating our enemies, which he has already done. It is contingent on our sin, the payment for our sin, the penalty for our sin already being paid. It is contingent on us having a future eternity with God and that future is more certain than our present folks. And that is why we can abide in joy through this season. That is why we can continue enjoy this season. Because it is not grounded on something that might be or might have happened. It is grounded on the certainty of the, the gospel. The finished work of the gospel. The certainty that the price for your sin has been paid. And you now stand before God righteous if you are his. And so folks, we can be happy in God. And that happiness can transcend suffering. It can transcend pain. It can transcend a global pandemic. Because it is a happiness that is based on a certainty, which is the finished work of the gospel. So I just ask us all to stand now. We're going to sing. Well, no, we're not going to sing, actually. The guys are going to sing for us. um, But we can say these words. We can speak them if you want behind your masks. But we can respond to God in worship with joy in our hearts as we sing these couple of songs. Uh, Elizabeth and Matty are going to start us with, I stand amazed. Mark, Uh, Mark, sorry. Mark and uh, Elizabeth are going to lead us in, I stand amazed. Isn't that the position that we can stand before God in light of the gospel and be amazed at the work that he has done? We can sing that with joy in our hearts and then we can sing or speak, O come all ye faithful. We can adore him. We can worship him. We can praise him with an abiding joy, even if you are struggling in some, in some area of your life at the moment, even in the midst of struggle. The Apostle Paul says we can have joy because the gospel is bigger than all of that. So as Mark and Elizabeth come up, let me just pray for us. And then um, we can listen to these songs and speak them uh, along if you want to do that. Let me pray. Why don't we stand together as I pray for you?